Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, a podcast by Fightback, the Marxist voice of labor and youth. We live in a revolutionary epoch. The crisis of the capitalist system is creating political polarization and instability in every single country, as millions of people look for a way out. The product of this is unprecedented social upheaval and yes, revolution. Now we firmly believe that the crisis of capitalism is creating the conditions for socialist revolution. Yes, even in Canada. The point of this podcast is to provide a Marxist analysis of what Trotsky described as the molecular process of socialist revolution. This week, in the Canadian Revolution, we are going to discuss an extremely modern topic, an extremely modern text. We are going to discuss the Communist Manifesto, published in 1848, written by uh, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Now, you may uh, be laughing and thinking that this isn't modern. I'm not joking. We are not joking. This is an extremely modern text, actually compared to anything else written at the time, or even things written in the 20th century, frankly. Uh, this text, is, it, 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 it describes our society not, it describes society not then, although it did. It, it, it was more predicting our society now and describing all of the main issues of the modern world, of the capitalist world. So yes, we, we are uh, going to go through this text. Um, I have with me today, Uh, I have Alex Grant, editor with Fightback, so we are going to go through this text and explain uh, why it is relevant, why it is actually extremely modern uh, text. But uh, yeah, welcome, Alex. Hey, Joel, how's it going? Very good. How are you? Yeah, very good. And it's great to be back on on the podcast. Yeah, we're going to do this occasionally. So this week in the Canadian Revolution, the most modern thing and most relevant thing that we could think of was the Communist Manifesto. And so occasionally uh, we're going to, going to talk about theory and classical works of Marxism. And, and, and of course, we'll, we'll be doing current events too as, as that comes up. But uh, yes, the Communist Manifesto, 19th, written in the 19th century, but it is the most modern book you could imagine. It speaks to today and, we, and we're going to go through it uh, with some of the highlights. Like pretty much every time I've read the Communist Manifesto, I see something I haven't seen before. And uh, I actually, I challenge anybody to pick any other book from the library from the 19th century to see, does it say anything to today? Almost overwhelmingly, no, doesn't say anything to today's world. Maybe uh, Darwin's Origin of the Species, but apart from that, it's only historical relevance. Whereas the Communist Manifesto really explains everything that's going on and everybody should read it if you have not read it hopefully this primer will be a good start to encourage you to read it if you have read it read it again you will learn new stuff and and hopefully we'll point out stuff that you haven't seen already okay then let's uh let's get right into it here uh well if you have read the communist manifesto maybe you, you you open the first page uh you will notice that it opens with a quote um, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Extremely uh, profound 
idea, um, not just for its time, for today. I think if we look around the world, we see class struggle making a comeback, uh, mass political instability, strike movements, revolutionary movements, insurrectionary movements, uh, student movements, workers' movements. Uh, yeah, and this text describes uh, describes this phenomenon. So yeah, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle. But uh, yeah, maybe I'll throw it over to Alex. You want to comment on, yeah, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, it has a small note attached to it and says written history. So clearly, there, there is a human history prior to class society, uh, a pre-class, classless uh, society of humanities. And, and that's really important for analyzing the indigenous oppression, who are largely pre-class societies, or what we call primitive communist uh, societies. But written history is the history of different class societies, whether it's slavery, so you've got slave owners and slaves, feudalism, feudal lords and vassals and serfs, or capitalism, you've got bourgeoisie, proletarians, capitalists, workers. And, and, that, and that antagonism between classes is, is, def, is a defining feature of, of human history and politics, because politics is merely history of today. The history that has that is being written as as we are living it, and I, I, but the amazing thing is actually if if you go to academia, you will find uh, many many historians and political scientists saying class doesn't exist, class doesn't exist, and and so this is this opening what appears to be a common sense statement is actually incredibly controversial, and incredibly important. And this idea that class doesn't exist is actually incredibly convenient for the ruling class. And it's also incredibly ridiculous to say that class doesn't exist, especially in the COVID crisis, when all of the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, and all of the academics and, and so-called thinkers, what were they doing? They were hunkering down at home. Where were they getting their food? delivered by delivery workers, made by food service workers. They were ordering stuff of Amazon. Who was, who was making that? Manufacturing workers, who was delivering it? Yes, delivery workers, warehouse workers. Everywhere you look is the working class. You know, as Ted Grant said, not a light shines, not a wheel turns without the kind permission of the working class. And this is defining feature of our society. And if you ignore this, well, then you're doing a very good uh, job of bootlicking the capitalist class. Yeah, exactly. So I think class is of central importance. Um, and I mean, as, as they describe in the manifesto, uh, capitalism actually historically has simplified class relations. And I think you can even see this, you can see this today. Uh, he says, the, the text says society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps into two great classes directly facing each other, bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Could not think of a more modern uh, sentence, actually, a more modern concept as we see that today. Now, I know in academia, people are like, oh, it's, a, it's more com complicated than that. You got intellectuals, you got a lot of different layers uh, of society. Um, but yeah, all the polls show that 
maybe in the past due to in a country like Canada, due to the post-war boom, some people didn't consider themselves working class, but with the crisis of capitalism, which we will get into in a minute, uh, more the vast majority of the population considers themselves to be working class or working poor, whatever you want to call it. And there is a uh, growing class consciousness amongst the proletariat. Uh, as well, directly related to this quote, I think in large parts of the world that previously were maybe not fully capitalist or not fully proletarian, you've had a proletarianization of the population of those countries. Um, so yeah, this is totally true. There is a total uh, splitting up of the society into these two main classes, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Even profession, like Marx talks a bit about that, even professionals, uh, are, which which used to be really not proletarian in, in nature are basically becoming paid proletarian elements. Uh, and that's what what capitalism does. It produces, it, it, it simplifies the class relations between these two classes that line up directly facing each other. Yeah, Alex, you want to say something about this? Yeah, because it's very explicit that the wealth of the capitalists is extracted from the labor of the working class. So the more we have, the less they have, the more they have, the less we have. It is a zero-sum game, and that is totally antagonistic. But then you've got the liberals and the soft-left reformists denying class denying what is a material reality and they think they're so very clever oh no we're post-class and blah 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 well who picks class up then if the left i'm using extreme quotation marks uh denies class who picks that out the right wing does the right wing says ah we represent the working class trump polyev you know, so are we, you know, the Republicans and the Conservatives uh, are the real working class party. And they recognize class. Of course, their politics are in favor of the ruling class. But rhetorically, they have no problem um, embracing class politics and saying that they represent the working class. The so-called left, the soft left, denying classes has conceded that battle to the right wing, where, in fact, it's only genuine socialist marxist ideas they say yes we recognize class and we are on the side of the working class very very clearly and what we gain they lose and what they gain we lose uh we need to fight yeah so connected to that fight back <clears throat> the international marxist tendency believes that and this is what we fight for in the movement that we the left the labor movement the uh, must stand for class politics, must put class first, must be, we are uniting working class people uh, against the bosses, against capitalism. Because if this, as we've described, this proletariat that's becoming radicalized by the crisis of capitalism doesn't find that outlet, it will be manipulated by, by charlatans like Pierre Polyev, the convoy people, the Trump types on the right. Um, so, yeah, we need to fight for an independent working class revolutionary socialist alternative on the left, which we will get into later in the text. But, yeah, I think we should move on from this. Um, I guess the next point is, if you read this, it's almost like it's a it's it's almost like it's predicting globalization, which largely had only really begun at that point. Um, so it says the modern modern industry has established the world market for which the discovery of America paved the way. So uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. I'll throw it back to you, Alex. You say anything yeah. about globalization? Yeah, there's another great quote. The need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. So again, saying this is a sort of an old idea, almost nobody in the 19th century was talking about globalization and and imperialism and world trade and world markets. Now, Marx and Engels explained the logical consequence of capitalism, incredibly modern, incredibly modern, uh, and has a, a role in developing the productive forces, world trade, but also has a role in creating crisis. So it makes the entire system, it, it develops the economy, in, in develops productivity of labor, but also develops contradictions and crisis. Yeah, so I think this actually goes, helps to explain, even there he says, um, he talks about the discovery of America, he talks about colonization, and let's explain the root of colonization was the development, the establishment, uh, or was capitalism, the, capitalism was created through the colonization of the Americas and the creation of the world market. Um, which as, as you've said in the last point is very essential for understanding the indigenous question here in a country like Canada um, and how we can write that historic wrong. Um, uh, yeah, so globalization, it's very, very relevant for today. You could say that modern, you, it's very, it's impossible to understand modern politics, global politics without an understanding of this of the the basically the imperialist conflict between powers right and the the chasing up of different markets around the world and the fighting over different markets around the world um it's all related to this and really the dynamic that's happened through uh, the 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 globalization of the economy the proletariat the industrialization of the proletarianization of of all countries and the bringing every country into the world market that's it's very prophetic that marx marx describes this whole process here um but yeah, I don't know if you have anything else to say on that, Alex, or we could move on. Um, the question of, yeah, the question of the state. So obviously a key question, as we see today, um, uh, you know, as soon as you start rising up, people rise up to fight back. What happens? The state that's supposedly neutral, the police, the the government, the different state institutions uh, uh, don't like the masses rising up <laughs> and and you know the supposedly neutral bodies of the state unite against and, and crush mass movements we've seen we've seen this all over the united states with black lives matter you've seen this in canada against indigenous protests you've seen this in canada against working class uh the work uh strikes uh trade unions going on strike and having their right to strike being taken away and having them crushed and 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 horrible uh, horrible contracts imposed on working class people so yeah mark says here the executive, he's talking about after the bourgeoisie have overthrown feudalism and they've taken political power, he says, the executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. And really, I think that is a, a fundamental, important, profound concept that a lot of people on the left in the movement don't understand uh, and actually kind of almost worship the state and look to it as a savior of sorts. So yeah, this is a very important concept that this this state is not in Canada, in the United States, in Europe, and any modern bourgeois state is not our state as working class people, and we should not look to it for protection. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's an important point that we should discuss. That's that's in the text. 
Um, yeah, Alex, do you have anything you want to raise? On yeah, this? so so the reformists they view the state as an empty vessel, and they view politics as merely okay, which party wins the election, and you get to fill up the state, fill up this empty vessel with con conservatism or liberalism or social democracy or or whatever. But and this is related to a class analysis of society. It's entirely related to a class analysis of society that really the structures of this body. It are not determined by whatever party wins the elections. That the differences between the liberals and the tourists, or, or, or in the states, you know, United States, the Republicans, the Democrats, it's, it's, it's very, very minor, very, very minor. And you've got the continued maintenance of class rule. And, and the state is, is not just the party that's elected, it's uh, the judiciary. It's the police, it's the military, it's all of the bureaucratic functionaries. It's this entire body, it's this entire monster that serves the legality as well, serves to further class rule by the capitalists. And, and so you have to understand that, and we'll get into it later on in terms of what you need to do with the state, right? But uh, again, this is incredibly advanced understanding of the state. It cannot be viewed as a neutral body. It is their state for their class rule, and the workers cannot rule through the existing state structures. Yeah, and a couple of examples of this. So, you know, if you don't, if you think that if you still have illusions in the state, well, a couple of examples might suffice to show you what the state actually does when you elect a left wing party, maybe a party that is sort of genuinely trying to represent the workers. You have, uh, well, I guess he wasn't elected, but Corbyn, when Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn was leading the Labour Party, he was saying some quite left wing things against the capitalists, he calls himself a socialist. Um, and a top general came out saying he would do a coup d'etat against any Corbyn government that got elected. What does that tell you about the state? The and state that is did not happen neutral. to Pinochet. <laughs> and that did happen to Pinochet in Chile in the early well, 1970s. Pinochet, yeah. yeah, Pinochet took out the Allende government that had been democratically elected. Um, uh, you had the example of Syriza elected. That was a so-called anti-capitalist party in Greece recently that was forced to betray on their program that they were elected on. <laughs> so yeah, like once again, it shows you the state. Uh, you even had Hugo Chavez, who was probably the most left-wing leader elected in any country in the last... 20 years uh, and constantly would dole out orders and they wouldn't be obeyed and the, the state was not always doing what he wanted. So yeah, I think the question of the state is a fundamental one for anyone who wants to change society today. Um, yeah, we'll get into that a little bit more on like what we should do about it, as you said here. Um, yeah, in the we're still in the first part of the, the Communist Manifesto. Marx talks a lot about, he says, the revolutionary role of the bourgeoisie. Um, I know when I first read that, I was like, what the hell is he talking about here? And a lot of people might read it and wonder what the hell he's talking about, because you hate capitalism. But then, you know, what, what does he mean? You want to talk about this, Alex? Yeah, well, the, the bourgeoisie were revolutionary. They were revolutionary. They, they led revolutions against feudalism. You know, you got the English Revolution, you got the French Revolution, you got uh, the American Revolution, uh, Revolutionary War of Independence. And... And this served to massively advance uh, productivity of labor. Uh, and, and there's much to learn from those revolutions. And so Marx is not, again, later on, he talks about, these aren't just 
socialism is not just a good idea that falls from the sky and it could have been applied today or 100 years or 500 years or 1,000 years or 2,000 years ago. No, no, no. There's a, there's a, uh, there is a progress of hu human history. This goes against our uh, postmodernist friends that for in its revolutionary epoch, the bourgeoisie were revolutionary. Now they've become counter-revolutionary. But there's much to be learned from that. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. So he says here, just to quote the manifesto about uh, the, the rise of capitalism, he says, it has pitlessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that band bound man to his natural superiors, quote unquote, and has left remaining no other nexus between man and man but naked self-interest than callous cash payment. It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism in the icy water of egotistical calculation. Now, there is a progressive side to this, but it's a, it's a contradictory thing, right? It's obviously, uh, you know, as Marx said, uh, uh, capitalism comes onto the scene of history, uh, dripping with blood, sweat, and dirt from every pore. So it developed the productive forces. It was a revolutionary advance in a pretty much every field with, uh, over feudalism. Um, but at the same time, it did this with absolute brutality, um, as we've seen. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we, we are not bourgeois revolutionaries. No, <laughs> we, we are not. We, so so we don't, we're not apologists for capitalism, and uh, we, we, we're not uh, proponents of the bourgeoisie at any point in history. And, and we point out the utterly murderous role, yes, even during their revolutionary period. But you know, you've got the formalists and the postmodernists that... that want to see things as always you know they're either good good or bad bad and and the outcome of those ideas is that you could you could apply you could implement socialism anytime well either you come to the conclusion that feudalism is great or slavery slave society is great or a pre-class society where everyone died when they were 30 was great uh, you either come to that conclusion or you come to the conclusion that socialism could be implemented just because somebody came up with a good idea at some point without actually being part of material relations. That it, it actually has, there has to be sufficient material relations, productivity of labor to be implemented. Yeah, so going on from that idea, so if capitalism is revolutionized the means of production, as Marx talked about, it's revolutionized the way that everything's produced, it's revolutionized every, the way that everything's, uh, the whole world market, trade, relations, um, uh, um, well, it, can it just endlessly develop society and are we just trapped in this capitalist paradigm for all time? Um, so this really leads on to the question of crisis. So Marx talks about, no, at, at, at one point, capitalism was basically a, a, a revolutionary force in the world, as we've described here. Um, but at a, yeah, at a certain point, and we live in the epoch of capitalist crisis. The bourgeoisie are not a revolutionary force. They're precisely a counter-revolutionary parasitical force. Um, and Marx explains how this process has happened, going from a revolutionary to the counter-revolutionary uh, force. He says, modern bourgeois society with its relations of production, of exchange, and, uh, and of property, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and of exchange, is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. Um, so yeah, then he, he introduces the concept of crisis, 
Um, but yeah, I don't know, Alex, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, well, this explain we we are living in an epoch of capitalist crisis. Right? This again speaks against the bourgeois ideologist, the capitalist ideologist. Oh, there's no crisis. Capitalism is a uh, pure equilibrium system. No, and, and and also the left apologists who say that there's no other system but capitalism. Like no, the development of private ownership of the means of production inevitably leads to crisis and 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 it's not just any kind of crisis yeah in these crises there breaks out an epidemic that in all early epochs would have seemed an absurdity the epidemic of overproduction there overproduction there is too much wealth there is too much development of the productive forces to be sold at a profit while pushing down the conditions of the workers. The workers cannot buy back the stuff that they have just made. This leads to the crisis of overproduction and crisis of society. That And, and, and you, you saw that in, in COVID, that uh, yeah, it's because everything became overextended and society entered into this crisis. Incredibly modern. Also may add in terms of some academic Marxist tendencies that talk about the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. I think we talked about that in another podcast, but uh, I don't want to go into great detail, but they deny the crisis of overproduction. Here it is, foundational work of Marxism, front and center, crisis of overproduction. Yeah, precisely. So capitalism uh, develops into the situation uh, in which, as Marx said, it is no longer able to control the productive forces it has unleashed. So then what Marx, Marx asked the question, so how does the bourgeoisie get over these crises then? Um, and he says, on the one hand, by enforced destruction of a mass of productive forces, on the other, by the conquest of new markets and the more thorough exploitation of the old ones i cannot think of almost a more modern concept and that 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 you see it's not just a a game where the bourgeoisie it's like oh no every 10 years you enter into crisis no they they do have means at which they try to overcome the crisis but i would just add that those means are limited because you know you destroy the mass of the productive forces this is what crisis is and that's when you usher in an epoch of revolution right the productive forces, a, a big part of the productive forces is the working class itself, whose lives are being smashed against the wall in the crisis. Um, yeah, and then you have the conquest of new markets, which we see today with imperialism. You see uh, the, the US imperialist ra saber rattling with Russia over Ukraine or Taiwan, etc. Um, and it says the thorough exploitation of old markets, which is the increased exploitation of the working class uh, in markets that they already control. So, yeah, really, I think, you know, the bourgeoisie attempts to get over the crisis using these ways, but Marx adds that, <laughs> that, the, that this leads, he says, paving the way for more extensive and more destructive crises uh, and by diminishing the means whereby crises are prevented. So, yeah, Alex, you want to come in on this? Yeah, that explains the present situation entirely. Okay, so we had the COVID crisis, uh, crisis of overproduction exacerbated by the pandemic. What did the capitalists do? Massive state expenditure and bailouts and corporate welfare. 
and massive printing money. And, and, and they stopped that there was actually you know, in, what was it, March and April of 2020, the stock market collapsed, but the state came in. The state's not supposed to do this. State is supposed to stand back and let capitalism solve itself. State massively stepped in in every country, billions and trillions of dollars were pumped in, uh, in corporate welfare and printing money. And it stabilized the system, it totally did. Stabilized the system. But again, it creates new crises. That printing money, that welfare, corporate welfare, has created the inflation crisis we in, are in right now. So the workers either pay through cuts, unemployment, attacks, you know, talked about shutting down factories and stuff, or you pay through inflation. So your wages stay stagnant, but everything gets more expensive. Uh, eventually, the workers are forced to pay for all of this, and the capitalists cannot find a lasting way out of their crisis. They always create new and bigger crises. Yeah, so we live in an epoch of crisis, though this, again, this is extremely relevant for what is occurring today, as I hope we've demonstrated. Uh, so then, what, what, um, how do we change society? How do we, how do we get over these crises? Is there anything? Is it just doomsday barbarism? Uh, well, that leads to the question of the proletariat that we've already talked about a bit. So Marx says, uh, but not, uh, but not only has the bourgeoisie forged the weapons that bring death to itself, it has also called into existence the men who are to wield those weapons, the modern working class, the proletarians. So socialism, according to Marx and Engels, and we would adhere to this view, is not just a good idea. It's also a scientific idea that can be implemented concretely, uh, that, that flows naturally from the struggle of the working class. Um, and so here is Marx introducing the concept of, of the proletariat. Um, yeah, Alex, you, want, you don't have anything you want to say on this? Yes, and, and the proletariat is incredibly alienated by capitalism. The wealth of the capitalists is dependent upon the poverty of the workers. You know, that uh, uh, the work of the proletarians has lost all individual character and consequently all charm for the workman. He becomes an appendage of the machine. An appendage of the machine. I, I, that explains modern capitalism perfectly. Now, just think of your Amazon worker. Just think of your Uber driver who following the uh, uh, the app, right? Merely an appendage of the machine. People lose individuality. I should you, you. While we're at work, you literally sell your individuality and sell your personality to the boss, and you only get to express any kind of individuality uh, in the very small number of hours between work and sleep, if you manage to get any sleep. Right. So it creates an alienating working class and a revolutionary working class and a class conscious working class that that's you know, which has an inherent interest in overthrowing capitalism. That And then we have to base ourselves upon the working class again, right from the beginning. If you deny class, you deny revolution, you deny changing society, whereas the consciousness of the working class in potentiality is entirely revolutionary.
Yeah, so because of what uh, Marx is, uh, and Engels have really brought out in this text about uh, the development of capitalism, the crisis of capitalism, and the and the the conditions that it forces on the vast majority of society and the working class, and how the crisis makes all of that worse, which we're feeling it today, like we're the first generation to live worse than our parents, um, uh, which that concept, that fact, that material fact proves what Marx is saying about capitalism at once being progressive and now being uh, reactionary, uh, the bourgeoisie being totally unable to advance society, capitalism cannot advance society forward. This leads him onto the question of where he's basically, uh, well, I'll just quote, quote the manifesto because it says it better than I would, almost anyone would. He says, and here it becomes evident that the bourgeoisie is unfit any longer to be the ruling class in society and to impose its conditions of existence upon society as an overriding law. It is unfit to rule because it is incompetent to assure an existence to its slave within his slavery because it cannot help letting him sink into such a state that it has to feed him instead of being fed by him. Society can no longer no longer live under this bourgeoisie. In other words, its existence is no longer compatible with society. So this is here where Marx is calling for a basically a revolution stemming out of this class struggle of the working class against the bourgeoisie. So extremely modern concept as actually we're seeing this developing all over the world actually and the potential for this and the potential for a new form of society coming out of this process. Um, but yeah, Alex, you got any comments on this point? Yeah, and this also speaks to uh, sort of those who have faith in capitalism. Yeah, look, if capitalism can develop the productive forces, give everyone a job, give everybody an education, get everybody, get everybody a home and decent holiday and stuff like that, then we'd be the worst utopians. Capitalism was great, then nobody would ever be interested in revolutionary Marxist ideas. Is capitalism great? I don't think so. In fact, yes, the present generation, the Zoomers, have got absolutely no experience of a capitalism that developed things. You know, the Zoomers are poorer than the millennials, who are poorer than Gen X, who are poor, poorer than the boomers. It's been going backwards and backwards and backwards for generations now. And and that creates this revolutionary consciousness. If capitalism could develop uh, productive forces, maybe that will abate. But there is, there appears to be absolutely no hope for that, that, that uh, society can no longer live under this bourgeoisie. There must be a revolution. And eventually that will happen. And, um, well, one of the more famous quotes from the manifesto, I think, connects to what we've already talked about, where Marx says, what the bourgeoisie produces, above all, are its own grave diggers. And then he draws a conclusion that its fall and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable. So, yeah, we should have absolute optimism in this, actually. And we should be we should have revolutionary optimism in uh, the victory of our class against the bourgeoisie and have a long view of history in the sense that actually capitalism hasn't existed that long at all. Um, and uh, due to the way that the system functions with these built in hardwired sort of crises into it and the 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 the, uh, the development of the consciousness of the proletariat that socialist collective consciousness of the proletariat um, 
and the the developing revolutions we, we can it's totally possible to fight against capitalism and have a new society um so yeah we have we're just imbued with revolutionary optimism because ca it is capitalism above all else that is creating the crisis that has created the productive forces that are now rebelling against it in the modern proletariat so yeah extremely modern text really capitalizing on what we have i really think you know if you look at what's happening in the u.s uh the most powerful capitalist nation that has ever existed the anti-communist country is facing a wave of well interest in socialism interest in communism and rising class consciousness you have the starbucks unionization wave you have the amazon unionization you have just a uh if you look at the polls most workers want unions um what is that if not the bourgeoisie producing its own grave diggers and the logical conclusion of that process is the victory of the proletariat against the bourgeoisie. And it is, we'll get into that into the next chapter, uh, the job of communists, of socialists, of Marxists to lead the workers in that direction and help them succeed, um, to help our class succeed. Um, Alex, do you want to say anything on this before we move into the next part? Or No, I, th I think you got it all, Joel. I, th I think we can move into chapter two. Okay, yeah, chapter two. Well, the first chapter is probably the most important one, but chapter two is the what do you do chapter. A lot of people would maybe agree with chapter one, but the chapter two is really the what are we supposed to do about it? Chapter two, proletarians and communists. So, uh, yeah, well, I don't know. Alex, you want to introduce this part? Sure. So opening stanza, in what relation do the communists stand to the proletarians as a whole? The communists do not form a separate party opposed to other working class parties. They have no interest separate and apart from the proletariat of, as a whole. They do not set up any sectarian principles of their own by which to shape and mold the proletarian movement. The communists are distinguished from other working class parties in this only one, in the national struggles of the proletarians of the different countries, they point out and bring to the front the common interests of the entire proletariat, independent of all nationality, and two, in the various stages of development which the struggle of the working class against the bourgeoisie has to pass through, they always and everywhere represent the interests of the movement as a whole. So this is about sectarianism. This is about the sectarianism that plagues the left, unfortunately, that much of the left has not learned the lessons of the Communist Manifesto, 1848, that they, they set up these sectarian principles to try and distort the movement rather than recognizing the objective reality of, movement, of the movement of the working class, the present consciousness of the working class engaging with the workers with their present consciousness to lead them and to inspire them to a revolutionary consciousness and conclusions that that's utterly vital it's also the concept of internationalism internationalism uh, that that is baked into the dna of marxism sectarianism and internationalism Yeah, so fundamentally important that communists do not artificially separate themselves from the working class and the working class organizations. And yeah, unfortunately, there is a <laughs> there is a se section of the of the left that does this, that is unhappy with the leadership of the working class, 
develops a sectarian attitude towards the organizations of the working class and even the working class itself. Um, and uh, yeah, we should not we should not do that. That's a bad idea. If you're you know, and you should you know have like I've described have optimism in the fact that the working class is well, I think starting to wake up because of the crisis of capitalism and organize as a class. And communists, revolutionary socialists, Marxists need to be with the working class in their struggles, shoulder to shoulder, not simply tail ending the workers on every little minute uh, reform that might better people's lives, but creating that link and risk, like he says, uh, representing the movements as a whole. And what Marx and Engels are saying is that the communists need to be with the workers in their organizations with their shoulder to shoulder with them in the struggle and simply bring forward the logical conclusion of the struggle the property relations the question of private property right that needs to be dealt with um and so yeah that's ultimately what we need to do today is when we're fighting for socialism in the movement alex you want to come in on this yeah well in terms of in terms of back to sectarianism that when you look at uh, various left groups uh, revolutionary left groups you, you see they, they they have this incredibly sort of inward looking perspective because they can't engage they can't engage and convince the wider working class so it's like their entire universe is the few thousand people who consider themselves revolutionaries in canada and and so it's like poaching people from other left groups and uh, and turning up at other left meetings and uh doing uh yeah, yelling insult. I, I'm, again, I'm trying not to swear. Um, and 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 just very very petty politics. And and the, and whereas, you know, again, we we said it before. Like fight back was the smallest group on the left twenty years ago. It was like five of us or something like that. And now we're the largest group in the Canadian left or the, the far left. And uh, why why is that? Well, we spent our overwhelming effort turning towards the 25 million workers in Canada, especially young people, and try and convince new people rather than poaching people from other left groups, right? Rather than just in this really stultifying atmosphere of the left, it's like a miserable self lack of help group. And uh, whereas no, look outwards, look to the real people, look to the real struggle, rather than this internal uh, sort of bickering. <clears throat> yeah, extremely important that we have that perspective. Aim to the class, right? <laughs> Aim to the masses and, and, uh, and go to them. Um, moving on, because we're going to run out of time here. Well, I just want to take actually a short commercial break before we get back into the rest of the manifesto. Um, yeah, so you are listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, a podcast podcast by fight back the marxist voice of labor and youth we're part of the international marxist tendency uh, you can check out our websites at marxist.ca or in french marxist.qc.ca and our international website uh, marxist.com we have a uh, we don't only we don't only exist online we also have uh, publications our newspaper uh, our english language newspaper in canada is called fight back uh, and you can subscribe. We encourage you to subscribe online to support us um, and get a Marxist analysis delivered to your door once a month. Um, and in this, we have six new subscribers in the past week to fight back. We and I'll, I'll name them out here. We have Sarush, we have Samuel, we have Elmer, we have Abby, 
Matthew, and Andrew. Thank you very much, uh, comrades, friends, supporters, and to our French language publication, La Riposte Socialiste, which I equally encourage you to subscribe to on our French website, marxist.qc.ca. We have two new subscribers, Elise and Rosalie. So thank you, Elise and Rosalie, for subscribing to La Riposte Socialiste. Uh, yes, and if you like what we do, once again, I encourage you to become a Solidarity subscriber to fight back and give us a monthly amount that really helps us sustain our activities. And you um, can buy the Communist Manifesto on yes, our website. Can. Yes, is, we do. Is it marxist.ca slash store is what it is? Yeah, it's marxist.ca slash store. We have copies of the Communist Manifesto, probably the cheapest copy you'd get. Uh, if you get it at uh, chapters or whatever, they have a giant introduction that tells you why it's wrong. So if you want to dispense with that, <laughs> not spend all your money on someone telling you why the manifesto is wrong, get our copy of the manifesto, which is uh, cheaper and better. Um, so getting right back into it, <clears throat> the question of private property, which is I already raised previously. Um, sometimes people, you know, don't like that, raising that question. Are you going to take away all our stuff? <laughs> Communists want to expropriate my toothbrush. Uh, they're taking away my family farm or my house or my car or my dog or whatever. Uh, Marx actually anticipates this disagreement and has an argument against this in the Communist Manifesto. I know, Alex, you want to explain this? Yeah, the original quote is that in this sense, the theory of the communists may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. But that is, yes, okay, are we going to take everything from everyone? No. Actually, do you know who's taken everything from everyone? The capitalists. People don't have private property in the scientific sense. Of course, you, you have your personal effects and stuff. We don't want to take that away from people, but it's capitalism that is forcing people into poverty. It's taking everything away from everybody and amassing it with a small number of capitalists. What was it? The top 100 Canadian CEOs. They got a 32% average wage increase or a take home increase in the last year. 32%, right? That's what we want to abolish. That's what we want to abolish. We don't want to abolish working class people surviving. In fact, if you created equality in Canadian society, if you equalized the wealth, that would benefit like 80% of Canadians. 80%. Yeah. The, the overwhelming majority of the population, because there's a huge concentration of wealth at the top. And what it is, we will abolish capital. Do you own any factories? No, you don't own factories. You're fine then. If if you are part of the you know, of part of Fightback's program is nationalized the top 150 corporations. If if you're a CEO or one of those top corporations, you should be worried. But if you're not, if you're not part of the 1%, you'll be fine. And we wish to take capital from an exploitative relationship, a social relationship, where a minority expropriate the, the value, the labor of the majority, and change that so we will all benefit from cooperation, socialist planning, democratic control of the means of production. Yeah, exactly. So not about stealing your stuff. We're about 
stealing the stealing is the wrong word. We produced everything. The working class produced everything. It's about reappropriating things that the working class has, has produced from a small layer at the top, which leads right into the next point, I think. Quite often you hear this, but if you didn't have capitalism and brutal exploitation and competition, uh, there would be no incentive and everyone would be a lazy, lazy hippie not wanting to work. Uh, well, Marx also predicts this disagreement and he has a, or this argument and he has a, he has a section on this. Uh, Alex, do you want to tell us about that? Well, yeah, he makes fun of the ruling class and says, well, if that was the case, who's more lazy than the ruling class, right? You're the lazy ones. You're living off the labor of others. The, the reality, th this is just slander. This, this is the slave driver's mentality that people will only work if they're whipped or starved. And, and that is the present condition of capitalism. But, but it just ain't true. Human beings are productive creatures. It, it is part of our self-worth to create something. What we want is actually to benefit from the stuff we create, rather than that go to enrich another, to turn around to oppress and exploit us. No, our common labor will go to enrich all of us. So it won't be laziness. It'll actually be incredible creativity. That This society is a waste of human creativity. That people like why why say anything why 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 put forward good ideas it's just going to be stolen by your, your manager or by the boss and then be used to exploit you further you know if a worker comes up with an idea that makes something ten percent more productive then the boss will lay off ten percent of the workers whereas in a socialist society worker comes up with the same idea we all get to go home half an hour sooner or we get to sort of uh, produce something nice for our community. That's the difference between capitalism and socialism. Yeah, so I notice uh, this argument is, 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 is quite curious because I worked a lot of jobs in my life and uh, really you only, with the way that capitalism set up and the way that, you know, um, this argument about you'll be lazy if you don't have capitalism is like, no, man, because in, under capitalism, you only be you only work hard enough to not get fired. Actually, you don't actually have incentive to work that hard. Uh, and I believe, and I, so I just believe it's completely false. And actually, the people that actually don't like the lazy worker, lazy workers do do exist, um, are the other workers because then you have to pick up the slack. So it's in the collective interest of the working class to be productive. <laughs> um, so I think that that's just totally false. It's, it's, it, this argument's put forward by people who have never worked a job before. People are lazy at jobs because there is no incentive, actually. <laughs> they, they're, they're, the only incentive is the whip, is the threat of firing or disciplinary measures, which isn't a very good incentive. It might work briefly. Um, but yeah, working class people liberated that actually have a stake in society, that actually are in democratic control of their workplace and of society at large, actually... Uh, would be more productive, get more benefit from you get an immediate benefit from being more productive um, and working harder. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the way that we should respond to this laziness argument. Um, moving along, uh, very, very advanced point uh, about the family raised here. Um, quite often, um, you hear from academia that Marxism didn't care about 
Marx is only about class uh, or something like that, which is just a slander. It's just not true. Actually, Marx and especially Engels uh, uh, were far ahead of their time in terms of uh, talking about the oppression of women and how to fight against it. Um, so yeah, they introduce here the concept of the abolition of the family. Um, and yes, they, they once again are, are predicting an argument uh, about that, um, where he says, but you communists would introduce a community of women, so screams the bourgeoisie in chorus. So, uh, but yeah, then Marx then says, the bourgeoisie sees, he's talking about the capitalists actually, <laughs> throwing it back at them, but the bourgeoisie sees his wife as a mere instrument of production. He hears that the instruments of production are to be exploited in common and naturally can come to no other conclusion than that, that the lot of being common to all will likewise fall to women. <laughs> so basically Marx turns it back on the bourgeoisie. It's like, no, that's just how you see women. Um, uh, but yeah, so this is a, there's a profound point that, you know, he describes that the modern conception of the nuclear family and the oppression of women is due to class society, actually, <laughs> and that we do away with that. It doesn't mean the collective exploitation of women. That's what the capitalists think, right? It'd be the liberation of women and liberation of all people, actually, ultimately. Um, Alex, do you have anything you want to add on here? Yeah. Well, first of all, there is this slander by liberal feminists that Marxism doesn't care about the, the liberation of women. In fact, here it is, foundational work, 1848, Marx and Engels putting the liberation of women front and center before feminism had even been spoken of, didn't exist. Uh, and and yes, the, fam the bourgeois family as an incredibly oppressive institution with the, with the slavery of women, of women being you know, tied to the kitchen, to the housework, to the bedroom, and uh, I, I, for the maintenance of bourgeois property relations, that right at the heart of it. Now we see, and and, and then there's the um, the stuff about community of women. Now this phrase is is, is slightly confusing. That people, are, what does that mean? Community of women. I saw a 1960s translation of uh, the Communist Manifesto that translated it as, are you want to abolish free love? Right, the very 1960s translation. But, uh, but that'll give you a flavor. The fact that this is the Victorian bourgeois morality, which, which is not just ended in Victorian times. It continues to the present day of, you know, again, the slavery of the control of women's bodies that the, the capitalists uh, instill to have assurance of their property going down through the male line, right? Whereas what we envision is abolition of the bourgeois family, abolition of the oppression of women, of free human relationships. I guess, yes, free love in that sense, of people can make free choices of what human relationships they enter into or separate without social compulsion, without violence, and, with, and, and without economic compulsion as well. How many battered women are they actually make that choice? What is worse, the homelessness and poverty of leaving an abusive relationship or staying in an abusive relationship. Women make that choice all the time today. And 
that is inherently part of capitalism. Whereas if there was full employment, free education, decent housing, uh, all of this, and, and universal free childcare, free education, then women wouldn't face the compulsive nature, economic, the economic compulsion of staying in an abusive situation. And, 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 and people, and, and what human relations will evolve in a future socialist and communist society, we cannot know. We cannot know entirely, but we want to remove all compulsion and allow freedom to rule. Yeah, so that sums that up. Um, yeah, moving along, because again, I think we're going to run out of time here. <laughs> um, there's an important point on internationalism, which I think is a central lesson for us today uh, and for the movement. So, um, yeah, Marx, well, if you open up any book by Marx, <laughs> usually it's contained within the front thing, the front first page, workers of all countries unite. Um, and so that's an extremely important concept. Um, but yeah, he, again, in the arguments that is constantly leveled against communism, against Marxism, uh, uh, one of them uh, Marx deals with here, which is the communists are further reproached with desiring to abolish countries and nationality. Um, but yeah, his response is quite clear. He says the working men have no country. We cannot take from them what they have not got. Since the proletariat must first of all require political supremacy, must rise to be the leading class of the nation, must constitute itself the nation. It is so far itself national, though not in the bourgeois sense of the world, or in the word, bourgeois sense of the word. So yeah, he, he describes how first, uh, because of the, the conditions of capitalism in the bourgeois nation state and the bourgeois nations, the proletariat will naturally rise up nationally uh, but then transcend national borders and have an international consciousness, um, which I think you can already see today. Uh, people have, you know, due to the increased uh, communication because of inter inter the internet and whatnot, you have a, an internationalist culture amongst the youth in particular, young workers and, and students. Um, so yeah, uh, this, is on the this is on the question of internationalism, is that, yeah, we do not, that we're constantly put before us a choice, you know, you pick the nation and the, and that really means the bourgeoisie, you pick the side of your own bourgeoisie. And so we are internationalists, we don't do that. We, we defend uh, and we fight for solidarity between working class people of all nations, workers of the world unite. Um, Alex, you have some, anything you wanna say on yeah, this? Yeah, just very briefly. Yeah, yeah, much of the left also falls into, does fall into nationalism and, and forgets Communist Manifesto fundamentally internationalists and that we seek to end the exploitation of one nation by another and end the antagonism uh between nations so that that is the aim of communism yeah so uh another famous um quote from this text uh is is about the ruling ideas of any society being the ideas of the ruling class um, yeah, he says the ruling ideas of each age have ever been the ideas of the ruling class. So this is actually of fundamental importance. Uh, it's about ideology. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't know, Alex, do you want to take this one or? Yeah, well, th this is another one for the academics, right? That what's the dominant idea in academia these days? It's postmodernism. That do, do you think the capitalists, the bourgeoisie, 
would spend billions of dollars on these institutions if they're going to be putting forward a revolutionary idea that's going to overthrow their rule. Not a bit of it. The dominant ideas, the ideas of the ruling class. These are ideas, the, the dominant ideas in academia are ideas that endorse and support and continue bourgeois rule, capitalist rule. So this, for all the students out there, you must be incredibly skeptical of what your professors are saying because it's being funded by the capitalist state for the furtherance of capitalism. Ideology is not class independent. It, it supports one class or another. Yeah, I think this is a very key one. The, the ruling class doesn't actually first and foremost dominates us with ideas. They control, they control the media, the universities, the education system, the government. Uh, they can, and they can generally speaking, the dominant ideas uh, of any society are those of the ruling class. So uh, quite often you're encountered with this, with ruling class or working class people arguing something against their interests. Well, this is basically an example of that. But that in and of itself has limited power. That at a certain point with a crisis of society, with a crisis of the capitalist system that is failing to develop society forward, uh, uh, that doesn't hold anymore. That starts to break down. And that's when you have a period of revolution where people start questioning the ideas that they have taken to be common, so-called common sense for a long time. But yeah, in general, generally speaking, the ruling ideas of, of each age of any society have been the ideas of the ruling class. Um, moving on. So yeah, I guess, uh, what, do we, what do we do then? I guess this, this leads to the question of, you know, we talk about the working class fighting back against the bourgeoisie, and this leads to the question of the workers, uh, uh, I, I, taking power ultimately. Um, so yeah, he, the, com the manifesto says that the first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of ruling class to win the battle of democracy. Um, what does this mean? Does that mean that we should just run in an election and get a couple people elected or I know Alex, you want to come in on this? Yeah, well, well there's uh, two ways to interpret this and well, there's two polemics going on here. There's one against sort of anarchist terrorist methods, or and there's another against reformist methods. And it's a rejection of both. So the ideas of Blanky was for a minority revolution, a terrorist revolution of heroes. And, and this is explicitly against that, that we must win the battle of democracy, but democracy in the broadest sense, in the broadest sense of we, the working class, the revolutionaries, must win the support of the majority of the working class. That's what you need. We don't want a minority revolution. Minority revolution is a utopia. It, it won't succeed. You have to convince the majority. And, and the revolution itself is the, uh, the movement of the, the oppressed in the interest of the impressed. So... Uh, we've got to win the majority. But on the other side, in terms of, yes, win the battle of democracy, not have a, a minority revolution. We, we, this is not about reformism. This is not about parliamentarism by any means. So, And in the very next paragraph, it says, the proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest by degree all capital from the bourgeoisie to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state i.e. the proletariat organized as the ruling class, 
and to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible. So this is the workers forming a worker state. In fact, actually, on the experience of the Paris Commune, they uh, sharpened this even further. That said that the workers cannot use the old state forms, cannot use the old bourgeois state, must smash the bourgeois state, form a worker state, a workers democracy, which not just political democracy, but economic democracy, workers democratic control of production, socialist plan of production. So this is anti-terrorist, anti-anarchist, but also anti-reformist. The workers need to form their own democracy, their own organs of rule. So transitioning off of that, because this is the this is dealing with the question of the state, which I hope maybe we can do do one of these and go over Lenin's state and revolution in the future, because I think really to do it justice, you got to go in on this topic of the state, what it is in relationship to the revolution. Um, yeah, he talks about basically the transition to communism uh, in the manifesto. Um, so it says when the workers come to power, uh, he talks about how they'll sweep away by force the old conditions of production then it will along with these conditions have swept away the conditions for the existence of class antagonisms and of classes generally and will thereby have abolished its own supremacy of a class so in terms of the workers coming to power and becoming the ruling class it that might sound a bit funny to some people because isn't communism about having a class society? Well, well, there it is. You know, immediately we are not anarchists. I mean, the anarchist idea is generally speaking that you snap your fingers and you're going to have a stateless, classless society with no money or nothing. No, we don't believe that that's possible. And I think all history has demonstrated that that isn't possible. That you do need a transitional form, but that transition is, and Marx is describing that they're you know doing away with the material basis for class antagonisms and classes in general. And yeah, do it, which is doing away with the working class as, as the ruling class, because you won't, once you don't have classes, um, uh, you don't have a class, uh, you don't have a class society. Um, yeah. Anyway, so actually we have generally communists have the same end goal as anarchists. We just have a, there's a, just a different way to get there. Um, an understanding, a scientific understanding of how to get there. Um, Anyway, I'm not sure if we have much more time to get into this question. Once again, I think if you're listening to this podcast and you want to know more about that, maybe we will do uh, a discussion on Lenin's state and revolution. Um, uh, unless, Alex, you have anything final to say on this question? Well, we, we have to include the last uh, sentence. It's just a fantastic one about what will communism look like in place of the old bourgeois society with its classes and class antagonisms, we shall have an association in which the free development of each is the condition for the free development of all. That's fantastic. That's really fantastic. Both collective solidarity, but individual uh, emancipation in, in, uh, in, in individual development. So we, we can all you know, just raise the level of everybody's sort of intellectual, cultural, social, physical, you know, uh, level, everybody can achieve the, the maximum of their potential. Yeah, if you think about it, you can get ahead in capitalism, but you generally, you only get ahead by stepping over others and pushing others down. That's how the system works, right? Uh, communism is an end to that. So it's not just, you know, some type of people say, oh, communism is just collective poverty. Um, that's not true. That's a conservative slander. 
communism is collective emancipation and it therefore it is also individual there's a dialectical relationship between the collective emancipation if we're all emancipated then we all benefit as individually as a collective whole um so yeah that's the concept here um we can all have nice things we can all have work less every week we can all have free health care free education uh better housing better benefits uh i'd say lifelong education um uh, better food, better, you know, whatever you name it, the, the material conditions exist, the, and the political, but we just need to make it politically possible through the working class seizing power. And yes, um, with the free development of each is the condition for the free development of all. Um, well, moving on to the last part here, just to fi finish off, this is a uh, chapter three socialist, socialist and communist literature, where Marx and Engels in the manifesto deal with varying I guess, leftist, socialisty trends at the time. Uh, many of them aren't relevant anymore. Like, I don't think we really have much feudal socialism kicking around or true German socialism. So we won't really go into those. Um, probably the main important one is what he calls is like bourgeois socialism might seem a bit strange, but there is, uh, this is actually extremely relevant, a very big tendency uh, in the movement today. Um, I don't know, Alex, you want to comment on this? Yep. So a part of the bourgeoisie is desirous of addressing social grievances in order to secure the continued existence of bourgeois society. To this section belong economists, philanthropists, humanitarians, improvers of the condition of the working class, organizers of charity, it's a key one, members of societies for the prevention of cruelty to animals, temperance fanatics, whole and corner reformers of every imaginable kind. This form of socialism has moreover been worked out into complete systems. Charity, 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 charity. How many groups on the left fall into charity? This is merely trying to ameliorate the worst aspects of capitalism while maintaining capitalism. Actually, this is even being theorized uh, in Democratic Socialists of America, mutual aid. How is mutual aid different from charity? It, you know, I, I saw somebody on the internet say sort of, oh, we have to survive today for, you know, so we, we can be present for future struggles. It's like, this ends up just becoming charity. It's, it's, it's not even really reformism, right? It, it, again, it's been labeled here by Marx and Engels as bourgeois. It is merely maintaining bourgeois society and taking off its rough edges rather than organizing the revolutionary class into a party to overthrow capitalism. Yeah, exactly. So we shouldn't be looking for ways to uh, make capitalism a little bit more tolerable. <laughs> that is not what Marx is proposing. That is not what we propose. We don't think that there is a way to make capitalism more tolerable ultimately. Um, but that this is capitalism in decline. This is capitalism in crisis. And this and the role of communists is to actually help people understand that that this is this is the system that we live under. And the problem is the system. The problem isn't this or that small thing, this or that individual, this or that party. It's the whole damn system. Um, so yeah, this is why we we uh, we as Marx said, bring forward the question of property relations, of private property. Um, Alex? Yeah, and charity is top down. So it leads to a passive working class being given from above. And we're not opposed to fighting for reforms. Yes, you must fight 
for every reform, every improvement of the working class by organizing on the basis of solidarity from the base, from the bottom up, not charity from the top down. So we, we're not against reforms that improve the conditions of the working class. You organize and fight for them. And out of that organization comes revolutionary potential. Mutual aid is not this. Charity is not this. Yeah, so it's not redistribution of the wealth from below <laughs> to ourselves. It's a it's a class movement, a class struggle against the capitalists. And yes, we may be and we can and we do as working class people win things from the bourgeoisie, uh, even even without a revolution, right? Even before a, revolu a revolution proper, it's not all or nothing. Um, but yeah, the, it's just a different conception of how the struggle is to be fought. Yeah, and Marx has some scathing words to say for your uh, your philanthropists, uh, your charity types that think that this is this is how we need to organize. It's also, I think, just a waste of time. If you if you understand the problems of capitalism and you understand that capitalism is totally uh, needs to go, then you must organize to help us do away with the system. And organizing around various charity or mutual aid schemes uh, doesn't do that um, uh, ultimately. Um, it just helps to round off the edges of the capitalist system. Um, well, uh, I don't have much else to say about the socialist and communist literature point, Alex. I don't know if you do. I think, you know, we've been going on for over an hour here. So, um, and obviously this is a, this is a very profound text. Um, it's kind of impossible to really do it justice within an hour. Ultimately, I think everyone should just go, should read the manifesto as, as, uh, fight back here in Canada as the IMT. We hold regular reading groups. We probably have dozens and dozens of reading groups uh, around the country, maybe even hundreds at the current moment, discussing this text and the relevance today to introduce people to Marxism. That is one of the fundamental uh, uh, tasks that we are doing today. And and I really hope that that if you're interested in this and you want to get involved and you want to get involved in, dis in reading and discussing with others so you can really learn these ideas, yeah, get in touch with us. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Alex, do you have anything more you want to say uh, about chapter three or the conclusion here? Do you want to finish this off? Do, do I get to read the final uh, line? Yeah, you can read the final line. It's, it's okay, a very cool. epic, it's a very epic, very inspiring. Yes. Well, well there, there is this idea that we should hide who we are, right? Oh, communism, that's such a scary word. You know what? If someone called, oh, you're a communist. If you deny it, you're not going to stop them calling you a communist. You've just admitted it's a bad thing. It's like, hell yeah, we're communists. We're revolutionary socialists. We're Marxists. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's capitalism that is a corrupt, bankrupt, failing system that deserves to be overthrown. And it's that energy, that revolutionary energy that is going to change the world. You don't get anywhere by apologizing. Uh, you get there by organizing. And, and, and this revolutionary energy is right in the conclusion. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at the communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their change. They have a world to win. Workers of the world unite. That's what we're building on. That's what you should be building on. That's what we're going to win the working class to build on. Capitalism has failed. Socialism, communism is the only answer.
You have been listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, where we analyze the events of the class struggle, the turbulence and polarization brought upon by the crisis of the capitalist system in order to prepare activists for the coming revolutionary events so that we can fight back and build socialism in our lifetime. You can find us at marxist.ca and we will be doing this podcast every week. So we hope that you tune in again.